welcome to the Delling Pod with me, James Delling Pod, and my very special guest. He's actually more famous than somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, he's only famous than somebody else. Andrew Doyle. Hello. Hello, Andrew. But nobody knows who Andrew Doyle no. is. This is the problem. No. But yeah. no, actually, it's a good thing. It's yeah. a good thing. You, you're better known as... Titania you the name? McGrath. Titania McGrath. Um, I actually envy your position because you're nicely below the radar you can do creative things yes and and be sort of cheekily right wing without getting the shit that most of us get sort of before i because I, I didn't want her to i didn't want to come out as her so actually it was i, I preferred being having the twitter account without having people know it was me because i like the idea of people reading the character for the character and not thinking about me you know but unfortunately i got outed it wasn't my fault people think it was a plan that i wanted the publicity but i didn't i, I wanted to stay in the closet i was going to ask you how you got outed but actually i'm thinking about it it, it must have been so hard not to be outed yeah yeah but although it was a weird mistake um it was something to do with uh, a, there was a some sort of book fair in frankfurt and one of the people at the publishers had accidentally put my name next to the entry about the book so it was a complete accident it was probably just someone who worked there who didn't know that we were keeping it under wraps um and then chortle the comedy website chortle uh somehow got hold of this obscure uh, book catalogue from a frankfurt book fair very odd uh yeah but that's we live in the world of the interconnectedness of things this is you, it. you cannot escape apparently you've just made me think that that wikileaks the reason that wikileaks ended up killing all these people or betraying all these terrible secrets was that WikiLeaks hadn't meant, meant, meant the, the really bad stuff to come out but somebody at the Guardian yeah. had accidentally um, given away details thinking that they were everything kosher. everything is porous now but then maybe it's a good thing I mean I like I like to think that people you know writers always create fictional characters don't they so I like to think you know when you read a novel you don't think about who the author is particularly so I, I hope people can sort of you know suspend their can disbelief can I say Andrew that shows how old school and, and, <laughs> and reactionary you actually are I'm pretty you, reactionary when it comes because, to literature because yeah. you know that, that the current thinking on literature is that you cannot write outside your class your race your gender this is weird though isn't it like the, beyond weird how did that happen I mean you know and because when I was at university, the, the whole thing was about Roland Barthes and the death of the author and all of this sort of, sort of thing. You know, the author doesn't matter. It's about how you construct and construe the text, you know. But now it's all about, well, who is the author and what's the author done? And do, does, the, does the author have a sufficient degree of moral rectitude? Can we trust this author? And, and have they specifically experienced everything that their characters have? And I find that really tedious. Well, but, also, you'd have to wipe out huge chunks of literature, wouldn't you? I mean, more Flanders. Yeah, you, you'd have to write D that off. Defoe's gone. Uh, well, any anyone who writes as a as Clarissa, a, Clarissa Pamela. Richardson. I mean, it, it's it's nuts, isn't it? and particularly something like Pamela, which is which is all letters. It's all very much I'm writing. It's me. It's his. It's his. and and when How that was dare he try and get <laughs> inside a woman's head? <laughs> exactly, man. It was really successful. I mean, uh, Richardson was like, like the equivalent. Of, it was it was sort of like uh, a blockbuster kind of like people had like sort of Pamela uh, memorabilia and Pamela plates and things. Yeah, it was nuts. So. Um, and yeah, people were writing to him saying, "Oh, don't kill her off. Don't don't let her be, uh, you know, hurt by this Lovelace character." It's really funny. Yeah. Um, but I think I think this is the, this is the the point, though, isn't it? That if we if we subscribe to this idea that you need to to have a certain life experience in order to qualify to write about someone else's life experience, then we we say goodbye to fiction. We say goodbye to the craft of fiction, um, and it even impacts on comedy. You know, because it means that we, you 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 have to specifically always talk about your own experience. Well, of course, comedians lie all the time to make things funny. So what do we do? And also to avoid getting complete shit from their wives, I imagine. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Oh, and isn't that sex and me? You're assuming it's heteronormative. Certainly. I was just, well, I was also assuming that that actually most comedians are, are, are male which 
Duh. Well, all sorts of problems with that. But actually, that, I mean, that is wrong. There's loads of female comedians. Yeah, yeah, but the majority is still men. Uh, the majority are still men, and some female comedians, you see, might have wives as well. So there's all sorts of assumptions going on yeah, yeah, in yeah. your discourse. But, yeah, yeah, exactly. You see, you are policing, you are policing, policing my discourse you. now because you went to the, the most woke college I did. in Oxford. I went to Wadham. I mean, the, the epicenter, the, the college that's probably single-handedly brought Oxford University down. Ever Wadham. since, yeah, because Wadham had a warden. Uh, now, I wish I could remember when. It's a f- couple hundred years ago. Who was called the, the, the Sodomite of Wadham? Or the, they used to call it, basically, they used to so make it a used pun to, on... it used to be a fun place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like he Peterhouse was... Cambridge, which used to be a, a bastion of, of sodomy and, and high church sodomy, sodomy is fun, yeah. And I think that, you know, I love they should bring back Sodomite as a form of self-identification. I, or Somdomite. Somdomite, like, like, if you want the wild yeah, thing. But yeah. I, would use, I would use Sodomite or Somdomite, happy with that. Um, but, yeah, Wadham was super woke. Um, even when I was there, it was super woke. And um, all, did, all that and early did you version know, woke. Were you woke then as well? Uh, that's a difficult one. I don't think... I think my views have refined on various things, but I don't think my broad political ideas have changed all that much. But I think the the left, for instance, has changed beyond my recognition. So therefore, I think politics has shifted uh, away from, from me, or sort of my, my political home has shifted away from me. So I don't know where I am now. In fact, I don't really... I don't really think in terms of left and right anymore. Well, that's partly because I think the terms are pretty much redundant now yeah that the, the, the division in the country and I, I think this is probably a theme I've been rehearsing quite a lot on the podcast is that we're now in the land of remain leave yeah we're not exactly. really in the, the the alliances have changed and this is odd as well isn't it because you have labor pushing for the second referendum without uh, they don't seem to be connecting with the fact that the majority of labor constituencies are leave voting it's almost like they don't understand that their traditional working class base does not like the eu yeah and 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 how can that be how is it that it took jeremy corbyn to make the labor party more middle class than blair did yeah how can that happen yeah privately I, educated jeremy corbyn i don't get it i, yeah. I honestly don't i don't see what's happening but whenever i'm taught whenever people talk to me about the right left thing because i mean my background is from the left and so people is was, it, how, yeah. is, how is your background from the left insofar as i always identified as left-wing insofar as a lot of my values and ideas would be traditionally left-wing i suppose um but now i don't know what that means anymore and and also when people say well you're you're they call me alt-right now and things like that but being right-wing i don't think there's any wrong with being right-wing like that's the thing it's not a slur to me and i think if, if my values and ideas were in the right-wing bracket as some probably are and some are not i just say i was i'm not i don't have a problem with it alt-right i have a problem with because alt-right means white nationalist which i most well, definitely it, well, am it, not it, it, it means it, it's the catch-all term that means basically you're a nazi yeah and, exactly and you shouldn't have a hearing it's it, it, it's only used it, it's very non-specific in, yeah. in in reality because the people who've who've claimed the term right uh, alt-right yeah are that chap Spencer in America. Who, uh, yeah, he's got about five followers. I should think. No one gives a shit about what he what he says. No. Well, luckily, the white nationalist movement is still on the fringes, which I'm glad about because they're a bunch of nutters. Um, but the but the idea that that becomes a generalised smear for anyone who has any kind of conservative values. Um, I mean, I'm very interested in this. I, I, I would like to know your opinion. So, what values of mine? I mean, my, I I believe in the welfare state. I believe in in a certain communist a, a certain degree yeah, yeah, yeah. of wealth redistribution from proportionate taxation. Is this? I don't see those as right wing values particularly. But I do, but I They're also not. I also don't believe. Yeah, well, there we go. But so why am I? But I don't think there's anything wrong with having right wing. I tell values. you, I tell you your problem. Go on. You're kind of into free speech. I, that's it. That's it. And and you know the the weird thing. When you and I were at university, I mean, you were, you're younger than me, aren't you? How old are you, child? I'm 40 now. 
Quite, quite yeah. Normal, but Getting the, on. Yeah, yeah, okay. No spring so, chicken. So you're probably <laughs> in the transitional generation between the common sense of my generation and absolute ma- woke madness of the... I'm the end of Gen X just before the millennials started. Right. And that means, yeah, I've, I've kind of... Well, I think people... But I do think people of my generation are more pro-free speech on the whole uh, than, than what came after us. I think... The, the, because I think the old left, I think the new left, you know, the 60s and 70s and all the civil rights movements, they understood that you have to have free speech at the heart of anything. Because if you don't have that, then any cause that you wish to support is, is redundant anyway. And they knew that. Um, hence, you get sort of Berkeley movement in Berkeley and places like that, where, where now, of course, you get students sort of trouncing all over the principle in the name of being progressive, which, does, which is a complete incoherent stance. I don't, I mean, I, I worry about this. When I say free speech, or I talk about uh, how I, fe- I fear that free speech is under threat, people then say, therefore, you are a right-wing character. Mm. What, I mean, that makes no sense at all. Uh, and like I say, if I were right wing, I wouldn't consider that a badge of shame. I'd just say, yes, OK, Th- this is what I don't understand. But, well, the reason you don't understand it is because it's a bit like I put this I put this to dear old Brendan O'Neill the other day. And of course, Brendan thinks of himself as a Marxist, I think partly as a, as, as a way of getting stuff under the radar that he wouldn't say. No, I think he's he's sincere with that. I, yeah, 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 yeah. But I but I but I also think that, that there, there are elements that he hasn't thought through properly I mean I, I love Brendan I, I, I won't have words said against him but I put to him that perhaps cultural Marxism is just a, a variant of Marxism where class has been replaced by identity politics you know by, by, by gender by, by, yeah. by, by race and, and, and so on um, how is this relevant to what we were saying about about the freedom of speech thing? I got I've got completely. Well, I lost. suppose it's the ways in which people are mischaracterised. I mean, Brendan's a very good example because people demonise him so much uh, in terms of the, the media and what, what he says. But of course, you know, when you get to know him, you realise that none of this is true. I've suddenly remembered my point. Okay, um, which is that the language that that is being spoken by the woke yes is a bit like um, the Hegelian Marxist dialectic that that, that Marxists would... It's a kind of anti-thought. It's a system of thought which is not about logic. Yes. It is not about empiricism. It's not about about, about the rational. Yes. It's about, these are the rules. This is how it is. Free speech is a bad thing. There it is, because there's a thing called hate speech, and hate speech means there can be no such such thing as free speech. Why why I've got to police it? That's the the logic. I think you're right, and I think this comes out of the post-structuralist movement so we're going back now. Did you do that shit? Oh yeah, we, well, we all had to because I, I studied English literature, so yeah. we all had to read Derrida and people like that, and the all the the sort of the French post-structuralists. Foucault was everywhere. Michel Foucault was absolutely everywhere. Although he was the sort that nobody really read, but they read about him, you know. Yes. And um, but the thing about all of that, I mean, I had to read the bloody thing, but. Um, <sighs> The, the thing about all of that post-structuralist movement is it did exactly what you say. It it, it, it took the sort of Marxist template and replaced uh, money, um, economics with uh, with power structures. Yeah. And and as and that you see what we what we were experiencing at the moment is a kind of it's out of date actually because this is decades ago now. But it's this kind of um, filtered down, mis, half misunderstood version of post-structuralist thought. I think that's what's going on. So I think when people say they have a problem with the, the cultural Marxist idea, to be fair. The likes of Derrida were claiming Marxism and claiming to be Marxist, but they were redefining what it meant to be Marxist. Mm. So it's not entirely inaccurate, but I, I do think they have a lot to answer for. When I was at university, I, even then I thought it was bollocks. You know, even then, when I was writing my thesis, I wrote the, the opening chapter is all about how I, I'm not going to do this through the filter of post-structuralist thought or Foucault and his history of sexuality, which I think is bunkum. So, you know, so I, so I did that. You're talking I, about your doctoral thesis? Yeah, yeah. Well, what was it on? Well, it was actually on... Um, 
early modern poetry. It was on specifically William Shakespeare, Sir Philip Sidney and Richard Barnfield, who no one will know. Um, but I did a lot of research on Richard Barnfield. And it was about, it was about um, English Renaissance poetry, but, but, but about sexuality and eroticism. And of course, at that time, everyone was saying, well, you've got to, you've got to talk about Foucault. You've got, to, you know, you've, got to, you've got to acknowledge that there was no such thing as homosexual before the word homosexual existed, which is utter nonsense. And it was a dogma back then. And so I, I had to address all this stuff. But I said, look, I'm not going to read some overtly gay poetry like Shakespeare wrote and pretend it's not gay or not call it gay. You know, it doesn't make sense. If you're writing a love sonnet from one man to another, you're gay. Or at least there's a gay, there's a gay element to that. Yes. You know, so for me to be saying, yes, but it's anachronistic to refer to them by a term they would not have... Okay, sodomite then. Whatever, you know, whatever. You so, know. well, now I've got you. Uh, how gay was Shakespeare? Pretty pretty damn gay. I mean, like, if you, if, like if you... Well, no, we don't know. Nobody nobody knows, but you can... You, nobody knows about anyone who's long dead, right? You don't know about anyone's sexuality, really. What I would, happen, what I would say is there are only two uh, English... Uh, male poets of the Elizabethan era who are writing love poetry from one man to another. And one of them is Shakespeare and the other is Richard Barnfield. Um, there, are, there are certain homoerotic elements in other people's work, but they're, they're very direct, first-person love sonnets. You're a man, I'm a man, I love you. Right? That, to me, is pretty gay. And you can, you can say well, yeah, but they were sort of imitating the classical precedent of Virgil or something like that, which is a lot of... Uh, people try and explain it away. But, you know, bear in mind, when Shakespeare's sonnets came out, actually, that J Elizabeth was dead and King James was on the throne. King James was openly gay. I mean, he was flamboyantly gay. Right. He had open male lovers at his court. And that's the point at which Shakespeare's sonnets suddenly get published, you know? And it's interesting because people always quote either the, uh, the later sonnets to the Dark Lady um, or they quote the earlier sonnets that don't have gendered pronouns out of context so it can look like it's a heterosexual love sequence. Actually, the vast majority of those sonnets are to the young man. And then there's some tacked on the end to the Dark Lady. Uh, and they're very kind of uh, sort of misogynistic. I mean, it's, it's more like a kind of bisexual love triangle. There's even a point where Shakespeare sort of says to the woman, I will know if you've been fucking my young man because you'll get venereal disease or he'll get venereal disease off you that's effectively what he says oh. but this is not the idealized romanticized version of what we like to think the sonnets are because all we hear is shall i compare thee to a summer's day which is to a man by the way um but that's the you know we hear these things out of context is it to a man it is how, un un how, unequivocally how yes. do we know uh, the first 126 of the sonnets are to the male right. and then the last the last 28 i think because it's connected to the menstrual lunar cycle are to the dark lady so um it's explicit so he's quite a kind of um effeminate um Young man. Or young man. Yeah, he's an effeminate youth, a kind of ephebe, yeah. if you want to use the classical term. His eternal summer shall not fade. Ex exactly. I mean, he, the, the, the first sonnets, the first... Sorry, this is becoming literary, but the no, first... Nor lose possession of that fair thou owest. It, the, very good. Yes. <laughs> yes. The, the first 17 or so, I think it is 17 sonnets, are him urging the young man to marry, which sounds quite heterosexual, but he's doing it because he says you have a duty to reproduce and produce more beautiful boys like yourself. Oh, I see. So all of this, you know, this, this stuff isn't really... I this can't believe we're talking no, about this. No, I'm, no, I'm delighted we're talking about <laughs> okay. it. Because actually, you, you get asked all the time about Titania McGrath, and you don't I often do. get talked about the Dark Lady and stuff no, like she, that. Titania can't even say... Well, Titania... T t before we go on to Titania, yeah. t tell me, um, would you rather have been gay in Shakespeare's time or now? That's a really uh, good question. I mean, now, obviously, it's, it's, it's great because we live in a society where... It's it's fine. You've got like, dance music and drugs, which which, which well, Shakespeare, I mean that, Shakespeare didn't have. Didn't that. have but they had their equivalents. You know, they had mead and sack, and they had uh, you know minstrels and things. I'm sure they may do, um, but yeah, I, I imagine that uh, you know certainly at Shakespeare's time around the Globe Theatre and the Rose Theatre and all the theatres on the South Bank, there was a kind of a, a debauched gay undercurrent. You know, I'm, and was there was there a stigma attached to being gay or not? 
Well, I mean, technically, sodomy was punishable by death. Right. But Rarely. Are there any cases of where well, that actually it, happened? It, it happened a couple of times during Elizabeth, Elizabeth's reign, but it was only a couple of times. And in, in, in those cases, it was always tagged on to some other infraction. So, like, yeah. for instance, um, in fact, when Francis Bacon, when they tried to do Francis Bacon for, for buggery, I mean, he was almost certainly gay. Um, oh, was he? Yeah. And, and Both Francis Bacons were gay. Then. Yeah, exactly. Fine, fine uh, historical uh, tradition. So, the, the essayist Francis Bacon, though, when he... Uh, when they when they got him for sodomy, it was because it was really tacked on to another crime. You know, it's a way to sort of to to get someone. So it was a sort of thing where I suppose maybe because we didn't have they didn't have the terms, they didn't have the the, the terminology for it. It wasn't sort of known as such. You could you could be gay, and they wouldn't. You could, in other words, a man could have sex with a man, and you wouldn't say, oh, well, then that's a gay man. Right. You see what I mean? Like, it, it would be, yes. you know, and you had boys obviously dressed as women on the stage. So, so boys were accepted. Yes, I imagine, I imagine the theatrical companies, particularly the boys playing the girls, yeah. must have been really, they must have all been gay, surely. Well, I don't think, I think they just saw them as, you know, recognisable um, objects of desire. Right. In a way that women are, right, in, in, in this context. So, Whereas today, see, if a man has sex with another man, you, you're going to make assume they have a, an orientation. Maybe at the time... I don't know about now. This, this new generation well, that's, that's, that's about, they seem to be polysexual and they make it... You know, they, 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 I, mean, I know loads of younger, sort of 20-somethings, who seem to be very comfortable being gay and being straight at the same time. I think, yeah, and uh, you know, I don't care what people do. You know, it's completely, uh, completely up to the individual. But I think if we're being honest, we all know we have a preference, don't we? For the vast, yeah. the vast majority of us have have a preference. And I think, I think what identity politics has done in, in the realm of sexuality is it's kind of just it, it, it's focused too much on the labels and too much on on on, on appearances and, and all the rest of it, and not really on you know who do, who do you think about when you when you wank basically, which is a different kind of question. Yes, I when I was at prep school, I was. I was the most famously gay of, of my... Right? Yeah, 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 I was. And I, in fact, I was accused of having invented wanking. Um, That's quite an invention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I, I, <laughs> I, I remember, I remember it, was, it was in the last term and um, uh, we were all sitting in the orchard under the, in the summer term, all preparing to leave and somebody said to me, Delingpole, you showed us all how to wank, didn't you? And I thought... That's extraordinary. I can't believe... <laughs> I, I, I very much doubt I, I, that actually happened, but I like taking credit for it. Why thank not? you. Thank yeah. you. Um, but yes, no, I am... <laughs> At least you I'm, made a lasting contribution. I, lasting contribution. And, and now I, I'm, I'm famously heterosexual. <laughs> um, uh, Marlow was gay as well, wasn't he? Yeah. They, lo- they that love not tobacco and boys are fools. Very good. That's yeah, from yeah. the Richard Baines note. Yeah, you, yeah. You, have, you, you know your stuff. Well, I did... You know, I, I did... i tell you what surprises me uh, is... It's a long, long time since I read all this shit yeah. uh, at, at Oxford. And it's amazing how much stuck in my head. And I think it goes to show, actually, we did work really hard. And I bet you worked really hard when you were doing your... your I, do you know, I didn't as an undergrad. It was only when I started uh, postgrad work that I, I started if working If you'd gone hard. to Oxford, though, because you went to Aberystwyth. Yes, for yeah. my first degree, yeah. Had you gone to Oxford, I hate to say it, but they really do make you yeah, work probably. your ass off. And, and even, even in the old days, they did. Yeah. And uh, nowadays, I, I, I hear them complaining about the workload, and they're always going on about how they're having breakdowns and stuff. But I, I, I went through my files of my essays that I wrote. And yeah. Really, really thick files. We were writing two... Two and a half thousand, three thousand word essays a week, and talk, and having to do all the research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it's really stress. I mean, I taught the Shakespeare module for the undergrads while I was doing my doctorate because I was yeah. a part-time lecturer, and they, they, the, the workload that they had to do, you know, it was, it was tough. It was full on. 
And I think that's a really good. That's why so much is stuck in your head. Though. I don't that's know. I why. don't know how we find t- found time to socialise and, and get drunk and try to get laid because it was. Uh, it was the work schedule with the work and teach people to wank you know, yeah yeah, that, well, yeah no, no, that was get... prep school that wasn't oh um, you didn't carry on doing that is that not your I thought that was like your think, thing now I think people knew by the time <laughs> by the time they got to university yeah, even, even the sheltered ones yeah, I think would have, would have discovered that probably. so okay well, you did your you did this extraordinary interesting doctorate I think and I think that comes across in Titania her poetry is is quite sophisticated I mean <laughs> I mean it's it's ridiculous yeah but it draws on a, on a, lots of literary references and lots of ideas and tropes and. I suppose it does. I mean, it's it's bad. Let's not, you know. But yeah, it do, it does. I suppose draw on those things. And um, I, it couldn't have been written by a thick person, is what I'm saying. Well, she, uh, you see, I wanted it to be bad in a good way, right? So, yeah. uh, and and I think she. Um, I think she's smart. She's just utterly misguided. That's the thing. Like, she's not stupid. She's just... I've seen so many of my really, really intelligent friends be swallowed up by this cult of identity politics so that it doesn't matter how smart you are. You you can... Like any cult, you can get... You can start to believe utter nonsense. Well, I think it's in inverse proportion. I, I, I think the smarter you are... The more likely, right. rather, rather than it doesn't, doesn't it doesn't protect you from the idiocy. And certainly, if I'm right about uh, all of this coming from this sort of Foucauldian movement back in the day, yeah. this has come from the smartest people. This has come from from academics who say there's no such thing as truth. There's only language and discourse. You know that that's where this has come from. Well, you can see how seductive it is yeah. to 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 somebody who who wants to kind of rebel against the system. Yeah, it's just the right age. They catch you while you're just ready to be really stupid. Yeah, and they, they and and here are these ideas that make you uber stupid. It's trouble, isn't it? Like we don't. I, I wish that. I feel as though critical thinking has gone out the window. I feel like people don't think for themselves anymore. Um, and I think if we could get people to do that again, so th- then we wouldn't have this kind of polarisation, this tribal uh, approach to not just politics, but actually to, to anything. Um, but I think, I think in terms of the, um, sh- uh, the, the poetry, just to come back to that, in terms of what Titania's doing there, I think, because she won't mention Shakespeare. She sees Shakespeare as this icon of white male straight you know she, she doesn't know about the gay stuff does she probably doesn't know she's not interested she doesn't know he was black either uh doesn't know he's black or a black woman maybe yeah, yeah, you know yeah, who yeah. knows no she she thinks all of these any old white dead male she thinks the canon is just riddled with this so he you'll note in the book she references shakespeare a couple of times but she won't say his name she feels like it's a form of blasphemy to say his name so she won't do it um and i think she 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 believes uh that hi- she's bought into this thing that a lot of a lot of people now believe that that history has been written by these dead straight white males and they need to be erased out sort of tugged out of history you have to kind of unpick the tapestry and of course it doesn't work that way you can't just uh, replace the canon uh, with something new and trendy uh, that's you know it just doesn't work that way at all it's so um embedded in the culture of the young this yeah. work stuff i mean i was grumbling about having watching the other day an episode of sabrina um, who's a witch, a teenage witch. It's the new version. Yeah, it's the, yeah. it's the new version. And the first episode, there's, there was a, there's, a, there's a female character who wants to be a boy. Yes. And, and she changes her identity at the end and, and she wants to play basketball, even though she's shit at basketball because she's a girl, obviously. Outrageous. Really. really. And, and all the jocks mock her. Yeah. And, 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 and then Sabrina does magic on her to make her, make her really good, which, what does that say about women? That That's only, not only, good, is it? Only through magic that they can they Terrible. be Terrible. But, <laughs> so this is what they're being fed in their popular entertainment. And they go to university, even the best universities, and they're being fed this stuff. How are people going, how are we going to, before Western civilization 
collapses, which it may do soon, how are we going to recover I, the lost art of critical thinking? I think uh, it's going to come from the young themselves, because what I, whereas I think I'm probably a bit more optimistic than you, in that I honestly believe that most young people are sick of this shit. I think most of them, right, because you get this, this small, the, the, the minority, the sort of very vocal, woke minority, yeah. who have a lot of clout, yeah. they're the ones who go for the posts in the NUS, in the National Union of Students, they're the ones who, who make the most noise on social media, in the media, whatever, right? Yeah. But they are not reflective of, uh, you see, I don't like this idea of just writing off a whole generation, calling them snowflakes and all this stuff, it's not a word I use in that context, because I just think it's not helpful, and most young people I talk to are just as sick of it as anyone else, but and they hate the fact that everyone sort of thinks that their entire generation uh, are just mindless, and they're not. And I think ultimately um, it will come from within. You know, they're, 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 because when you when I mean, I used to be a school teacher. And when you when you do challenge young people, they they, they realise there's a frisson to critical thinking. Thinking for yourself is is fantastic. It's actually one of the most exciting things you can do. And when they experience it, they want more of it. And I think that's I think just being positive about that and and. And, and, and it's about education and, and it's about, you know, teaching them the right things at school and teaching them how to think, not what to think. Can I say, Andrew, you've mm -hmm. actually got me slightly wrong. You think of me as a, a, a crusty old angry, angry reactionary. But actually, <laughs> do you know what? I, I love the kids. I absolutely do. I, because A, I meet, I meet that generation because they're the friends of my kids. Yes, yes. And B, I too have been on the front line of teaching. I, I, I taught with Brendan O'Neill at Radley. Really? Yeah, that roughhouse school, Radley, okay. for, for, for two days. And I taught <laughs> at my old school, Morven, for a week once. And I taught at Radley at another time. And it was the most fun thing, the most satisfying thing I've ever done. Yeah. Just introducing kids to ideas and seeing them respond. Yeah. It was glorious. It's great. It's so exciting. And you're right, that the, there is much good in them, and well, as, as there always was. I mean, you look at the Romans. The Romans were writing about how the next generation had lost yeah. all the old values, and they were just it, the civilization was fucked. And 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 clearly that didn't happen. And this quite. is this is why I'm I'm really fascinated when I remember that um, so, someone for the uh, uh, someone for the New Statesman who hated the book, and she actually she gave a review of the book, but it was clear she hadn't read any of it because it, it, oh I love that review. It's that a was wonderful the best. review. I, I adore it because it is it's exactly the sort of review Titania would write. It was. And and the thing about it was though is. As always with these sort of um, this sort of woke approach, it's very narcissistic. And this writer was sort of claiming to speak on behalf of all millennials. You know, she's sort of saying we're sick of being sneered at, but the, the old sneering at the young, and that's how she interpreted it. And of course, what she doesn't realise is there's a lot of millennials who are really into Titania. But, but, but because because it's connected to this narcissism, this entitled worldview, she felt able to speak on behalf of, and it was perfect. Because I had loads of messages saying, "Did you write that?" Because it, it felt like I'd written it as a hoax. It was, yes, it was. It was. It was probably the best review you're ever going to get. I've quoted it. I'm like, like we've done another reprint of the book, and I've, I've, put, I've included it on the back. I, I imagine it's selling quite well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it seems to be. Yeah, which is again, which is really nice. And it's not just selling to older people who are sick of the young. It's really not. Um, and that's. I think that annoys them. I think the recognition that actually there are people of their own generation who are sick of this that the power is shifting a little bit. Right. I think that, that, that really gets to them, you know? And I think the fact that the fact that I'm annoying them suggests I'm doing something right. I think that's it. I, I must say, I am quite envious of you because you seem to be one of those people who is kind of accidentally successful, by which I mean not that you don't deserve it, but that you seem to have drifted along with your life. You know, I thought, 
well, why don't I do a PhD on, on Shakespeare's <laughs> gay sonnets and then I'll then I'll do a bit of teaching and then and then then I'll run a comedy club. I mean, is that is that how it's gone? No, I mean it feels a bit like that, doesn't it? But I mean, I you know, I, I or did. Were you a civil servant? No, I did. Okay, well, I'll I'll talk you through it. I yeah. mean, I was I was at school uh, and it was a normal, comprehensive school. I what's your background? Working class, middle, low middle. Yeah, it's a little normal, sort of lower middle. Uh, I, if you put a thing on it, I guess. I mean, my. My dad was a printer, uh, my parents broke up, and so my mum was, I was mostly with my mum uh, from there on, um, and uh, we didn't, you know, it felt normal at the time, but we didn't, we didn't have a, we didn't have money, we didn't, you know, we weren't well off, we didn't go on holidays abroad or anything like that, you know. Right. So it was, I think, quite a normal upbringing, yeah. um, but certainly not poor, um, and then um, I went to... I went to Aberystwyth University because it was the first... Uh, I went to the library and it was the first prospectus on the shelf, alphabetically. <laughs> and I, and I, and I, I, I have always thought I'd end, I would have ended up at Aberdeen if they'd had a copy of Aberdeen's prospectus, yeah. although I may not have got in, because um, I didn't work very or hard. Or Aardvark University. Aardvark University would have been great. Um, so I went to Aberystwyth. In the end, actually, I loved it there. It, it's a, but, but after that, I wanted to do a, um, a master's. So I went to York because I got a scholarship to do it. And then I wanted to do a doctorate, which again, I wouldn't have been able to do, but I got a, uh, I was funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Board. So it, it's not like I've just coasted, like I've only been able to do stuff because I've been paid to do it, basically. Right. And then thereafter, um, I, I wanted to be a writer, uh, but I, I'd run out of money. Right. And I thought, I was living with an elderly woman because she'd seen one of my plays on the fringe. And she said, oh, that's great. Come and live with me. You won't have to pay any rent. And I'll, I'll you know, just write. So it was like having a patron, you know, yeah. and she was brilliant. Uh, she was wonderful um, and so I lived with her Angela her name was I lived with her for a while and then I, I but then I just had no money at all so I thought well I'll uh, I'll go into teaching because that's all I'm qualified to do really yeah. so I did that um, well hang on this pause there okay you, you you were a teacher for how long I did full time seven years that's a long time. Yeah, that's that's that's. I mean, that's a mini career. Yeah, were you teaching English presumably and drama? Yeah, yeah. and drama yeah. at at. Oh, were you like were you like drama teacher in what's that Australian? What, Mr. G? Mr. Chris G. Lilly. Uh, <laughs> I like to think not. Um, <laughs> I like to think I have a bit more self awareness than that. Yeah. Um, no, well, I, I didn't really know what I was doing. You know, I, I was t suddenly I found myself. You know, I'm not. I'm. I didn't have any contact with private schools at all. Suddenly, I find myself teaching at a private school, boarding school in the middle of the countryside. What was the school? It, it was called Royal Hospital School. Yeah. And um, and it's a naval school, so they, all the kids would be marching to lunch in squads. They wouldn't refer to break. They call it stand easy. They 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 wouldn't refer to the lunch hall. They call it the mess. And so, and this was messing with my head. I didn't know what any of this messing was. Messing with your head. Yeah, uh, there we go. There we go. Yeah, yeah. And and of course, I'm I'm living in a boarding house because I had to look after them and and because I was a, a, a resident tutor. So it's it's. Full on, 24-7, taking them to chapel on a Sunday, teaching on a Saturday. You didn't have any time off. And at the same time, I was trying to start a stand-up career. So I was constantly going down to London, coming back really late. It was exhausting, but fun and exhilarating. Yeah. Um, then I, because I started getting more stand-up work, I went to a school in London or near to London called Merchant Tailors. Yeah. And then... So you were, uh, you were, you were a gigging comedian at this point? I was a gigging comedian at this point. And then I started earning enough from stand-up comedy to go part-time. So I went part-time, I went to a, a school in the Barbican called the City of London School for Girls, where I was part-time teacher for a couple of years. Yeah. And then I was earning enough from stand-up and writing to, to earn a living. I mean, I, w I wasn't well off. I, had, I, I could basically scrape by on it, but I thought I'll go for it because why not? And then I started working on the Jonathan Pye stuff. And of course, because Jonathan Pye took off, yeah. 
um, I was able to st- sustain myself um, in terms of my career. So, that, that's so do, you, do you write all Jonathan Pye? No, so um, we, we've, we've taken a hiatus. We're not writing together at the moment. I I've, I've, uh, the last one I wrote for him would have been back in January. But up until that point, we wrote everything together, yeah. And um, you, you, did you sort of create the character? No, no. T- Tom, who plays the character, created him. Right. And that was in 2000 and, uh, 2015, sort of September time. Yeah. I started writing a few months later, uh, December sort of time, because... Uh, yeah, I'm much more into politics, and Tom wanted someone who's more into politics, and and so we wrote together, um, and we, you know, we did some great things. We did two live tours. We did a book. We had we had we had some majorly viral videos that we wrote, um, particularly the one after Donald Trump's election. That went crazy all over America, and actually, that was the first time that people started. Um, uh, connecting me with Pi because of course Tom was mentioning that we'd written it together right. in interviews and stuff and I was getting some very angry messages from America mostly um, about that one uh, because of course in that video we were basically saying look Hillary was a terrible candidate you've got to take the left has got to take some responsibility for being so shit yes and, th- and, and it came at just the moment where a lot of people were sort of thinking that but they weren't uttering that and I think it just it, it became a big sort of viral hit um it got something like 150 million views and then it was nuts. Uh, and, but, I, but, but, but Titania came out late and Titania was just something I've, uh, and it, I just started doing last year just f- for myself because I was, i tell you what it was. Do, do you remember a character called Godfrey Elfwick? Yes, of course. Right, on Twitter. So it was a brilliant, uh, brilliant satirical character, this genderqueer Muslim atheist who was run by two people, but one of the people was Lisa Graves and I've become friendly with Lisa. Yes. And love Lisa. She's fantastic. And she encouraged me to do this because I said, I've always wanted to do something like this. I love what you do. And she said, well, you should just do it. So I did it. And she, um, um, I came up with this radical slam poet. I love the idea of writing bad poetry. And she, she mocked up the Avi, you know, the picture for me. Um, great Avi. I, I it's do, great, I, isn't do, it? I do quite fancy. Do you? Well, oh. it's, well, I asked Lisa about it. It's apparently it's the composite of a number of women. So it's not got no likeness to any real life person. That's clever. Um, but also what I love about that picture is... Because I, I said to Lisa at the time, I remember, like, Titania does not smile. She doesn't, she, she's so po-faced. So actually, when I tweet this stuff out, the, the jokes are enhanced by the fact that you've got this very kind of stern, austere madam staring at you and daring you to mock, you know, daring you to fight back. And that's part of, part of it, I think. But, um, so yeah, I started doing it just for myself, really. She kept getting suspended, like a couple of seven-day suspensions here and there for no reason. I mean, yeah. the, the tweets they said it was about, it was nonsense. It was nothing. Um... And then when she got to about 40,000 followers back in November, she got a total ban, complete permanent suspension. Did she? Yeah. So Twitter emailed... Oh, I, th- oh, I think I wrote about that. Yes, probably. Yeah. They, they yeah. emailed me saying, you're not coming back. This is it. Um, and then all these people started complaining about it on Twitter. And 24 hours later, they brought her back. And I think what happened was they realized that a lot of these sort of high profile right wing people were using this as ammunition to say, look, Twitter are partisan yeah. in their editorial practice, which they are. But but this was used as clear. Surely not. <laughs> um, so um, so she's back now. Um, for how long? I don't know. But I've got the book now. And you yes, know. But, but how can how can they possibly su- suspend her when she's just saying the same things that you had an example today about about, about the um, erasing gay characters uh, sorry straight characters from literature yeah well you actually had a real person saying that well often you take yeah often she screenshots some of the more absurd things that people are actually saying and they're saying it sincerely um and she just sort of accentuates them but these people aren't being banned no they're not but but i think i think if you're mocking it you know you've got to remember that, that silicon valley is largely run by people who are ideologically driven in this direction yeah so of course they don't like look i mean we said it ourselves with that new statesman review but if you're being mocked you're not going to find this funny you're going to find it upsetting yes so oh but but 
I, I, I totally accept that the these liberals in Silicon Valley are going to be infuriated by her. Yeah. But what is she actually saying that can justify it? That well, could, that they, what they do, though, is they set up their terms of service in such a nebulous way. Yeah. They don't have to specify why they get rid of you. Yes. Right? They, they, I mean, we, we saw this when we, we had Tim Poole and um, uh, Joe Rogan talking to Jack Dorsey um, and, and uh, on that interview, and they were quizzing them about their, uh, you know, about their policies. And ultimately, what became very, very clear is that the way that they apply their terms of service are entirely ideological. You know, and that, it just came out. It's absolutely clear mm. to me. Um, Dorsey himself has admitted there's a left-wing bias to the company. Um, so, and, and Quillette did a very good study where they, where they sort of specifically identified that, that if you're a conservative on Twitter, you're much more likely to sus be suspended or banned. I mean, it's just true. They do sometimes ensnare some on the left as well. But it's, it, there's very much a, a, a leaning there. That can't really be denied anymore. Um, and I think they can say, well, if you're, if you're dehumanising, that's the phrase they use, if you're dehumanising someone, then we can ban you. And they see comedy and jokes as violence. Oh, okay. And, yes. that, and that's something that we see all the time. That's why I set up this comedy night, is that people have completely now misunderstood what a comedy is. And they think, they think that words can, can, can create monsters. I'm glad you said that. And, and you're the perfect person to enlarge upon this. I noticed some time ago this shift in left-wing thought whereby language suddenly becomes the equivalent of physical violence right that is that has got to be a new thing i can't believe that 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 even even the early 20th century the, the left was equating verbiage no with but i suppose if you go back to the post-structuralist and if you say that there is no truth beyond language then you can invest language with this kind of significance but also what troubles me about it is actually i think uh in some ways, it could be deemed to be a tactic, insofar as if you say, your language hurts my feelings and therefore is an act of violence towards me, then it gives you a kind of, um, you, you, I suppose it gives you a kind of defense in advance for inflicting violence upon them. Because, because groups like Antifa, for instance, will yep. say, well, I'll hit you with a bite lock because you've said some nasty things about this minority group. Yes. So therefore, it's a form of self-defense. That's, so so it, gives you, it gives you some kind of justification for violence. So that's the disturbing interpretation of it. The other one is just simply that we are in this culture of entitlement now and narcissism, which means that people have an expectation that they're not going to be challenged or, or, or that their views are not going to be uh, debated. And, and they, they misconstrue uh, criticism as harassment. I mean, I've had it online where I'm getting into quite sort of civilised arguments with people about political ideas. And then they say, why are you bullying me? Why are you harassing? I'm like, I thought we were having a conversation here. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying anything that's out of order. I'm not in attacking you or being, you know, unpleasant because I don't do that. Uh, Did you find that when you were teaching the kids at, at, at Wadham? Um, there was a, there, no, not at Wadham. I mean, that's going back a bit now. But I think some of the kids I taught, certainly the sixth formers that I taught as a school teacher, particularly in the last few years. City of London. At City of London. Um, really great kids. But there was, a, there was a problem with resilience. And I think a, a, a number of the teachers would admit that there was a problem. Because on the one hand, we have a culture, an anti-bullying culture, which is important. You know, no one's, no one's for bullying. Um, well, but, I don't know. <laughs> character building, right? Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, what, yeah. but what it does is it does kind of, um, it means that there's an o overly coddled, over-diagnostic culture, right? So you'd say something like, you'd say, um, if you've got any problems at all, if you feel hurt or upset about anything, come to me, come to the teachers, come to the staff and we'll help you. Well, sometimes, right, now sometimes that's important because if, if someone's genuinely been bullied or there's something going on, you, you need to have those mechanisms in place. But on the other hand, if someone comes to you and says, oh, they said something mean and so therefore I'm, I'm crying about it, I'm going to, I've done all this sort of stuff. You just, at some point you've got to be able to say, look, 
just get over yourself, right? Pull yourself together. You do have to be able to say that. And the problem is it's becoming harder and harder to do that uh, with with kids at the moment because of the education policies as they stand. So we've we're, we're speaking before your your comedy night, which is once once a month at the the backyard comedy club in in Bethnal, Bethnal Green, Green yeah. in in East London. Yeah. Um, and I'm feeling obviously very unsafe because I know that this is yeah. a kind of quite a rough a rough neighbourhood. <laughs> um, I'm presuming I'm going to have some laughs. Tell me, your comedians are quite right wing or ish no th- this is something that's what we when we set up the night it's called comedy unleashed right yeah. and when we set up the night the idea was that i'd been on the circuit for a long time and uh, of late only the past couple of years by the way but of late i've seen a kind of homogeneity on the circuit so uh, a lot of jokes about how brexit voters are stupid and racist a lot of jokes about how donald trump is orange and has small hands you know and look there's places for jokes like that i don't care who you where well, well no, it's fine it's fine well in in stupid uh, world like how, how, you know how is it there is i don't care i think anything, oh, radio four is, is the place well where, there you go yeah. but i think anything should be a target and particularly people in power like donald trump of course of course he should be mocked right but my problem is that when everyone's doing the same thing there's a kind of supply and demand issue there and it gets a bit boring so all i was saying was you know it's okay to be a bit more experimental, I thought we'd have a night where, where because I know for a fact that a lot of comedians they worry about offending people now, uh, and so they self-censor because if they if if they are perceived to be an offensive comedian, they get branded an edge lord, whatever the fuck that means. They get they get called um, they won't get rebooked. They jeopardise their chances of getting on TV. So what they do is they play it safe and end everyone sounds ends up sounding a bit bland. So what I was saying is. The art form has never been pushed forward by people not taking risks. So we'll set up a night and we'll say, "Don't. it's not a safe space. We don't believe comedy should be a safe space. Do what you want. Push the boundaries. That doesn't mean that we only get right-wing comics, but it was interpreted that way. You know, right. people would say, like, we had the Sunday Telegraph wrote an article saying, free speech comedy night, finally we've got a right-wing comedy night. I was like, no, it's not. We have left-wing comics, we have right-wing comics. Um, we, have, we have a mix in the audience of political backgrounds. It's genuinely weird. When I, when I did my last Edinburgh show, which was a pro-Brexit, left-wing pro-Brexit Edinburgh show, mm. um, no one, virtually no one in the audience would admit to voting leave when I did the Jonathan Pye tour and I was doing the support I would always ask the audience so who voted leave silence in a room full of 3,000 people by the way night after night very few and and what that tells and obviously that can't be true what that tells you is there's now a stigma attached to a certain political mindset and we were saying in this room what you'll find is it's probably half and half and they'll admit it and that's a more interesting to me can I just tell you my briefly yeah by way of digression, my Glastonbury the day after uh, the vote yeah. story. I went to Glastonbury and I, I, I was so excited about w- that we'd won. Yeah. I, we the Brexiteers, that I was late leaving for Glastonbury. So the first band I got to see was Bring Me the Horizon. Right. And and the lead singer of Bring Me Horizon, whatever the name is, says, Anzopoulos, who's pissed off about the vote. <laughs> and everyone everyone put their hands. And Anzopoulos, happy. I think I was the only person there you go. in the entire <laughs> audience who was happy that that. Um, there you go. Because that's that's the kind of brave person I am, Andrew. That, I mean, you are you are yeah. courageous. But th- but this is the point: is that we we bore into the narrative that uh, the Brexit vote was about uh, whether you're racist or not. Right? We bought it, the, the media pushed this narrative for months and months. People bought into it, and so therefore it didn't it didn't become about whether you believe the EU is a good or a bad thing. It became about whether you are a good or a bad person, and you're and and, and, it, and it still is that land. And it's, it's I know, totally I know, is. but I 
Stop being reasonable. I think, you know it's true. I think you know the other side are, are evil and dark, and, <laughs> and, and they they but, ascribe but, bad bad faith to us, which we don't actually have. But this is this is exactly the problem, isn't it? Because there are good reasons on both sides of this argument. And a what? Uh, <laughs> where? Tell me. Okay, tell Go me the then. good reason for Remain. Well, okay, here we go. So I think um, we know why people voted. The polls told us quite clearly why people voted. Overwhelmingly, people voted Leave because of the principle that laws that govern this country should be made in this country. Okay, so that principle of sovereignty, which was the main reason, according to the Ashcroft polls, straight after the vote. Uh, conversely, the the uh, Remain, the principal reason for people voting Remain was an economic speculation that we would be better off within the EU. Well, speculation, right? Sure, uh, that's a generous. That's a generous. Well, because all uh, e economic uh, predictions, if you know anything about the history of economics, will tell you are often wrong. So you're saying that the, the best case scenario, the best argument they had was the speculation that there might be economic problems. The best argument was that. Well, firstly, that that uh, for them, of course. Uh, it, the system wasn't broke. A lot of a lot of people. This is why, of course, uh, working class people predominantly voted Leave because yeah. the system is broken for them. It, it's 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 fine if you are a kind of um, uh, affluent middle class person and and the system works for you. Why would you want it to change? You know. Um, hello. Well, right. Okay. I'm 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 not that affluent, but I'm certainly middle class, and I I'm telling you, there's there's, there's quite a few of us who, who think the system is and very I'm, broken and and inevitably I'm generalising. Yeah. But but what I but I, what I would say is that um, overwhelmingly I think people uh, voted Leave on on this principle and people voted remain on 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 this pragmatism and that's yeah. why there's this essential disconnect between understanding because a remain voter will say yeah but we're going to crash out the you know there's going to be super gonorrhea there's going to be army on the streets and people are like yep look we can be poorer for the short term but the principle matters more than that and you totally. don't get it that's, um, that's the problem tell me about the the shit you've had from running a, a right wing, oh, sorry, I, I, so I, I know <laughs> even you, you're doing it. I know, I know very carefully you avoided that that term. Okay, not not rampantly left wing. Uh, how how much trouble have you have you got yourself into for, for bucking this this trend? Because uh, comedy is pretty much dominated by the left. It is, but what, and what I don't understand is uh, the majority of comedians don't want to admit that, but it's just definitely true. Right, so they they don't want to admit that it's dominated by the left, um, and they'll say, and and certainly this night. There's, there's a lot of people who are not on board with it. They think it's a, you know, it's been mischaracterized as this sort of alt-right, you know, that there's a room full of racists and all this nonsense. And everyone here is great. And we've never had a racist act. I wouldn't be interested uh, in that. Um, we just have- Quite novel. Yeah, it would be. <laughs> this is the other thing, like racism isn't funny. And where are all these racist comics? They're, they're not here. They, we, they don't exist. No. So so um, we're just having, we're just having, uh, you know, it's working. Re it's working really, really well. But I'd say the perception of it is exactly what you described. It's like, oh, it's a, just a bunch of right, right wingers, and it's, it's just not. It just isn't. Um, but you presumably have been ostracised by many of your peers. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, well, they're, they're, uh, and so, and I imagine there was a was there a time when you were you were part of the gang, and you were loved, and then suddenly. Was there a so, moment when you knew that you were persona non grata? Yeah, so there was, there's a couple of things that happened. There's Brexit was the first thing because I was open about voting leave. Yeah. And that really annoyed. I have lost friends and some within the comedy community because I think people um, have bought in to this cult and they believe that if you're not on side, you are evil. Yeah. And, and, they, and, and it's really sad. Um, but there's that. The other reason is some of the Jonathan Pye videos which I had a heavy hand in, are the ones that criticise identity politics and, and that sort of thing. So again, uh, there was one about the gender pay gap. 
um, which has angered a lot of people because we just pointed out the facts that it is illegal to pay women and men uh, differently. Uh, uh, oh, they the hate work. facts. That's they hate really, facts. That's really exactly. below the belt, to use. I know, I know, exactly. Um, and so, and spiked is the other thing because I write columns for Spiked, um, yeah. and again because Spiked has been so mischaracterized by the people who don't read it, um, you know, they just very some very very smart people who have turned on me and called me Nazi and all this sort of stuff. And I, I think to myself, if you really believe that about me, then you, 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 we probably never were friends to begin with, you know? Yeah. And, and it's, it's just sort of brought out this bigotry. And, and that, that's, that's, that is what it is. Like, I, I've seen so much bigotry, particularly from the Remain side of the, the, of the debate, uh, particularly from the people who, are, who profess to be progressive, who are pro-identity politics, who, who claim to be looking out for the vulnerable. But they're the ones who are the most vicious people on Twitter. Uh, the most uh, the most uh, bullish and unpleasant people on, on social media but they're also the bigots because the dictionary definition of bigotry is an incapability to listen to someone else's point of view and that's them in a nutshell yeah so um do you know i am i am always up for talking to anyone of any political persuasion and and i always assume the best of people yeah. I, the problem i have with the woke friends who i have now lost is i think that they are the opposite i think they're pessimists who assume the worst of people. I think they have a mistrust in humanity. They think people are essentially bad. Uh, they think the country is crawling with fascists. They do. I don't. I don't buy into this fantasy because it is a fantasy. Uh, I think people are essentially good. And there are some rotten eggs right there, but yeah, I'll never assume the worst of someone. The, um, the people who perform at, your, at, at the Backyard Club, aren't they taking a, a bit of a career risk? Well, I mean... Not not not, I know because, what you mean. not because you're purveying racist ideas, but because of that perception. Yeah, I mean, one very prominent comic, um, she said to me that some other very famous television comic had gone up to her and said, why are you performing at that racist night? And, and, and she had to say, well, it's not racist. And, and like, people who know me know that I, I bore racism. I hate racism. The idea that I even have to say that is ludicrous, but it's true. And, um, and the idea that they want to just mischaracterise the night, yeah, sure, that, that I suppose... I did have another friend, by the way, who emailed and said, yeah, I don't think I can perform at your night anymore because of what it's come to represent. And I thought, well... What it's come to, yeah. That's not what it is, though, is it? That you're buying into and you're accepting this narrative. Why not challenge oh, the narrative? Oh, but it's about signs and signifiers, isn't it? Well, there it's we about, go, signs and yeah, yeah, yeah. signifiers. It, it, I, I want to get more, more sort of... Um, lefty woke comics on we've got one tonight right but i want more i want i want all kinds of comics to come on here but but because of this tribalism thing they now think oh well then you're on the other side but actually we've had we've had some really wokeish comics so far and i, and I just want to keep doing that right i suppose the, the the most depressing example is frankie boyle frankie boyle who was a comedian for those who aren't familiar with him he was Glasgow, hard as nails, or, or that was his act was hard as nails. And, and, and brilliant stagecraft. And there was nowhere that he would not go. And I, I watched him, this, this shows how fast things have moved. Yeah. He had a show, a late night show on Channel 4, I think. Is this the New World Order, the new show? No, 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 oh. we're, we're, talk, we're talking about 10 years ago, Oh, that's maybe. the, I know the one you mean. It was very near the knuckle, wasn't really it? Really near it the knuckle. It was Tramadol Nights. Tramadol that's Nights. That's it, yeah, yeah. And Tramadol Nights, I wrote about it in The Spectator and I praised it because because even then things were starting to change and you could see that Tramadol was, was very much on the edge of what was politically acceptable. Oh, yeah. And he was making jokes about disabled people, about Jordan's... Uh, disabled son and stuff like that. Very famously, he got in a lot of trouble. Famously. That, yeah. But although the jokes were sick, uh, jokes about the Queen Mother, and, and even if you, you 
didn't want these targets being attacked. Nevertheless, you, you applauded him, I certainly did, for thinking, well, at but least somebody is, is, is pushing the boundaries. But also, isn't it, isn't it really about... I, I think something's happened where we, we have this literal-minded interpretation now, or so many audiences have this literal-minded interpretation where they think if you joke about a subject, it's the same as the, an endorsement of that subject. Well, that's, you know? that comes back to that thing I say uh, about equating uh, words with, with actual physical acts. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's, and sometimes... We joke about things in, you know, we don't mean everything we say on stage. And sometimes we joke about things knowing that you shouldn't go there because it's sort of cathartic. It sort of reminds us of why we, why we have these parameters yeah. in society. And I think there's a really good thing about uh, what you'd call political correctness as in, a, as in politeness, a social contract. Because that's a good thing, right? But I oh, like... That's, that's the Der David Aronovich excuse. No, I no, think, no, I think I do, I, but I think it's true. You don't want to live in a world where... Uh, you could be in an office or I could be at work as a teacher and someone's like, oh, you faggot, do this for me and stuff. But it's, you, called, but, but it's called good manners. Good manners, right, okay. Which is not really the same. But, as but, political correctness is, is actually much, much... Oh, well, that's... It's, we it's weaponised good manners. A, okay, but that's a whole other debate. But, but, yeah. but I think, broadly speaking, we're on the same side about decorum. And yeah. I think it's not the role of the stand-up comic to be polite. Totally not. That's the point. Is that I think that they, they have, like Leah's fool, this 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 um, this uh, license to to go beyond what you're meant to to say, and I love that about. It. And they can get away with it. We can do that. I'm never saying I'm being censored. People always say this to me, like, "Why are you going on about saying you can't say anything when you're saying it?" I, I've never made that claim. I've never made the claim that I'm being censored. What I'm saying is, um, people in our society at the moment are getting nervous about being misconstrued and, th and so therefore they self-censor. Of course they do. Yes, they That's do. why people make WhatsApp groups to have chat chats with their mates at work so that they don't get fired from having a joke misunderstood. Yes. This is this is not rocket science. I am not saying that I'm, I'm being stifled in my free speech. I've never made that claim. People will tell me I made that claim, but I don't. I don't believe that at all. And I'm in a very privileged position because I'm a stand-up comic and I can say these things on stage or because I can write the columns that I write and the, and the character and the Titania stuff that I write. I can do that. But if I w still worked as a teacher, you know, I'd be nervous now about joking with my colleagues. Yeah. I'd be really nervous about it. And I, and I probably and wouldn't do so. it. so. Yeah, rightly so. And I wouldn't do it. I, I really wouldn't. I wouldn't take that risk. I'd, be, I'd make myself as bland as possible just to, for an easy life. And, you know, and I don't blame people who do. Yeah. You've actually got to feel the call from America now because that's how big you are. You are Andrew Doyle megastar. <laughs> so I really I th wouldn't I go think, that far. I think that this is the, I, this is the the, the right wing I, comedy entrepreneur. I do, <laughs> as, you, I, as you won't be described. I know. Of course, no, I do, no, no. I do have to go and do a podcast for America, but it's it's uh, it's interesting, though, isn't it, that it's the right wing conservative outlets in America that want to talk to me. Uh, but you know, well, because you are Rara Arvis. I, I wish I could have both, though. Don't you think? Don't you think if we could, if I could have like Look, in, this is it just shows how the how the the world, how messed up the world is. Yeah, it really that, does. That here you are trying to semi-apologise, not apologising, but, but, but defend, having to defend having a, a comedy night where people tell jokes. Or, or people come from different political perspectives. Yeah, yeah. You know, all of this nonsense about you're sharing platforms, you're talking to someone, so therefore you are, no, this is the phrase, fascist adjacent. Have you heard that one? People are now oh, using love it. fascist adjacent. So now Tatani uses proxy fascist adjacent if you've spoken to someone who's spoken to someone who, who, who has dodgy views. This know? is, so, this is like, so, you you have gone so fascist adjacent on this, because I can tell you, judging by Twitter, I am about the most fascist right-wing Nazi. Right, and it doesn't matter what you believe it matters what people think you believe right yeah, and yeah. now that i've shared a platform with you it's like it's airborne you know i've yeah, caught yeah. it it's, um, it's contagious right yeah, yeah. so i've got it now and anyone who talks to me has probably got it my yeah. cat's gonna get it right this is the problem i'm gonna oh, have a fascist cat that's sad anyway the point is i i i wish i could be in what i think this is this is what's wrong this is how we got to this 
problem that no one's fucking talking to each other. People are afraid to talk to someone of, of different views because then someone will brand them in, in, in the wrong way or take a picture with them and say, you're one of them now because you're not in my tribe. Mm. What the fuck's going on? That's not, that's not how humanity can work. It's not how politics can work. It really pisses me off. I agree. You were listening, ladies and gentlemen, to the end of Andrew Dawes' career. Um, <laughs> thank you and good night. <laughs> Uh, that was great. You're listening to the Delling Pod. It wasn't really the end of Andrew Dawes. I was just a joke, by the way. Just a joke. Um, it was the Delling Pod with Andrew Doyle, creator of Titania McGrath and proprietor. Oh no, what host? What? Yeah, proprietor. Proprietor of the founder, co-founder of the Backyard Comedy Club. No, no, no. The unleashed sorry. At the back. sorry, unleashed. <laughs> unleashed. Okay. Right. Great. Thanks. Bye. Bye.